Hey, this is Dave DeCamp from Antiwar.com. This is Antiwar News for Monday, June 12th, 2023. All right, the first story at the top of Antiwar.com today, Zelensky acknowledges that the counteroffensive has begun. So Zelensky has confirmed that Ukrainian forces have started their long-awaited counteroffensive. Throughout last week, as I was covering, Russia reported large Ukrainian attacks in the eastern Donbass region and in the southern Zaporozhia Oblast, but Ukrainian officials stayed quiet about the assaults. This was on Saturday that Zelensky said that relative counteroffensive and defensive actions are taking place in Ukraine. He did not offer any details about the operations, which are being carried out with NATO equipment by NATO-trained troops. On Sunday, Russia said that it destroyed several German-made Leopard tanks and U.S.-made Bradley fighting vehicles over the past 48 hours. So the Ukrainians are using you know, these armored vehicles that they have gotten from the U.S. and its allies for this counteroffensive. The Russian Defense Ministry, they claimed that Russian forces continue to repel Ukrainian attacks. This was a statement from them on Sunday. It said, quote, During the past day, the armed forces of Ukraine continued unsuccessful attempts of offensive actions in the Donetsk, southern Donetsk, and Zaporozhia directions. So that's where the bulk of the fighting appears to be happening in Zaporozhia and Donetsk. Uh, if you look at this map here from South Front, uh, they report three Ukrainian attacks in Zaporozhia and eight attacks in Don- in an area of Donetsk. Um, and there was more clashes near Bakhmut. So there is just seems like a lot of fightings going on. Um, and this it's kind of been this way now since basically since last week, like last Sunday or Monday. Uh, it seems like that's when the counteroffensive really started. Um, and now, you know, the Ukrainian officials are acknowledging it, it seems like. And Ukrainian officials on Sunday claimed that their forces made gains in Donetsk, uh, but then you had the Russian statement saying that they repelled attacks from all directions. So neither side's claims have been confirmed, but it is clear that there's been steady fighting in those areas And U.S. officials acknowledged to CNN on Friday that Ukraine is taking heavy casualties, uh, you know, losing a lot of equipment, losing a lot of people. So, uh, you know, if you look at the battle lines, they haven't. Yeah, South Front is pretty accurate from just I've been following them throughout the war, um, you know, and it doesn't look like the battle lines have really changed much at all in this past week of fighting. Uh, even if Ukraine, you know, did make the gains that it claimed, which was in Donetsk, they said they captured three villages there. I think it was still pretty minimal. So I think, you know, this is really going to be grinding on for a while. It seems like, um, although I'm not sure exactly how sustainable uh, it is for the Ukrainian side. Um, so now, you know, the U S has been pushing for this counteroffensive instead of peace talks. We know that because Blinken, you know, explicitly came out against the idea of a ceasefire recently, basically right before this counteroffensive started, you know, this is completely encouraged and enabled by the U S and U S officials told Politico the other day that they think 
President Biden's reputation and continued U.S. support for Ukraine hinges on the success of the Ukrainian counteroffensive. So that's what it's about to them. Biden's reputation. And so they could keep pumping uh, weapons into this country. That's, you know, they want to see some success here. And they don't care how many Ukrainians die. I think that's pretty clear. All right, the next one here, U.S. ambassador says that Ukraine is unlikely to get an invitation to join NATO. So U.S. ambassador to NATO, Julianne Smith, has said that Ukraine is unlikely to receive an invitation to join NATO at the alliance's July summit in Vilnius. So Smith told Politico, quote, I think the allies now are in agreement that a proper invitation is unlikely while they're engaged in a full-scale war, end quote. So Zelensky has acknowledged that he does not expect his country to formally join the alliance as the as you know the war is going on, but he is threatening not to attend the summit unless Ukraine is given a guarantee that it will receive membership after the war. NATO uh, first promised that it would eventually that NATO first promised in 2008 that Ukraine would eventually become a, a member, but they've never been given you know a real timeline on this. And Smith said that NATO will give some sort of pledge to show long-term support for Ukraine short of a full membership. So this is another thing, you know, I've been covering a lot is it seems like there's a pretty serious debate among NATO members what exactly they're going to uh, give Ukraine at this summit. It seems like the Israeli model is popular, which means military aid, but no Article 5 mutual defense guarantees. Uh, Some countries, you know, more so the Eastern European countries want to do more. Uh, Also, the French, the French want to do more. Macron said recently that he wants the guarantees to be somewhere between, you know, the Israeli model and, um, you know, Article 5, a full membership for Ukraine. So some something more than what the U.S. provides Israel. I think when it comes to money, you know, Ukraine might be getting more money. The the U.S. gives Israel three point eight billion dollars each year. In military aid, Ukraine has obviously surpassed that quite a bit. Um, so, if they want to, you know, write something in to the U.S. budget to give Ukraine every year, uh, who knows how long that? Uh, who knows how much? You know what that total amount would be. So, these are all things we might learn pretty soon at this summit in, in July. Uh, all right, the next one here: U.S. announces 2.1 billion dollar weapons package for Ukraine. So the Pentagon announced on Friday that it will purchase $2.1 billion in weapons for Ukraine, including munitions for Patriot and Hawk air defense systems. So according to the Pentagon list, they're going to purchase additional munitions for the Patriots and the Hawks, 105 millimeter and 203 millimeter artillery rounds, Puma unmanned aerial systems, laser guided rocket system munitions, support for training, maintenance and sustainment activities. So the weapons are being purchased for Kiev under the Ukraine Security Assistance Initiative. So the Biden administration has primarily armed Ukraine with the Presidential Drawdown Authority, which allows the U.S. to ship weapons straight from U.S. military stockpiles. But this Ukraine Security Assistance Initiative, it can take months or years to deliver these weapons. They have to do, you know, a contracting period and the weapons might need to be manufactured. So it could take uh, a while. So according to a Pentagon fact sheet, the U.S. has now committed $39.7 billion in in weapons, in military equipment alone to Ukraine since the invasion last year. And again, that's just what the Pentagon is announcing and telling us about. 
So far, Congress has authorized the White House to spend $18 billion through this Ukraine Security Assistance Initiative. And that's the total. Uh, so far, they've authorized $113 billion in spending on the war. That includes military aid, economic aid, money for the Pentagon to pay for deployments in Europe. It includes a lot of things. So out of that $113 billion, $18 billion is, is uh, set aside for the U.S. to buy weapons for Ukraine. The Pentagon has announced $10.8 billion in arms purchases using this in the 2023 fiscal year and $6.3 billion in the 2022 fiscal year. So that puts the total that they've spent at $17.1 billion. According to these numbers, this is from the State Department and the Pentagon, these numbers. If these numbers are right, that means they're running out of this uh, type of aid. That means there's only $900 million left. Um, so they might be... White House might be asking Congress for more soon. Um, and Kyle, this article is by Kyle Anselin that I'm reading here. And he goes on to mention that there might be a little conflict of interest considering the guy in charge of the Pentagon was working for Raytheon right before he became Secretary of Defense. That's Lloyd Austin, of course. And they manufacture the Patriots. They make a lot of these weapons that the U.S. is buying and sent or sending to Ukraine. Just a total boon for them. But I'm sure that has nothing to do with Austin's previous uh, employment. All right, the next one here, Sweden will allow NATO deployments in a signal to Russia. This is another article from Kyle. So Stockholm plans to send a signal to Russia by allowing NATO troop deployments in Sweden before the country is admitted into the alliance. Turkey is holding up Sweden's bids right now to join the bloc. So Sweden's prime minister and defense minister announced that Sweden's military will step up preparations with NATO in an article that was published on Friday. So they said, they wrote in this article, quote, the preparations may consist of temporary basing of foreign equipment and personnel on Swedish territory. The decision sends a clear sig signal to Russia and strengthens Sweden's defense, end quote. Um, so I guess they're just trying to show that they're, you know, basically... Uh, you know, that they're going to be joining NATO before it actually happens. They, they're going to want uh, U.S. troops on their territory, I am sure. And we know that the U.S., it looks like the U.S. is going to be building bases in Finland, the newest NATO member, uh, under this military cooperation agreement that they're working out. And I'm sure that we'll probably see that in Sweden as well. But yeah, so far, the situation with Sweden and Turkey, it seems like since Erdogan has been reelected, I think that the U.S. and NATO are going to are really pushing him now to approve on uh, to approve Sweden's NATO bid. So we'll see if that happens soon. Um, all right. So the next one here, Rand Paul uh, says that Congress is beating the war drums for China. So this is from Responsible Statecraft, and this is good to see uh, Senator Paul speak out against all the China war hawking that's been going on. This article is from Kelly Vlahos. So Senator Paul acknowledged on Thursday that his fellow Republicans are obsessed with China, war with China, that is. The Kentucky Republican told an audience at the American Conservatives Annual Foreign Policy Conference that he is concerned that hawks on Capitol Hill are going to march the country right into a conflict. He said, quote, you come to my Republican caucus and you'll hear the beating of drums. These drums for war with whomever, but primarily primarily war, war with China. Everything is about war with China, end quote. 
And, you know, he's right. This is something I'm always going over is how, uh, you know, hysterical Congress is, especially Republicans. But I mean, the Democrats are just as bad. They're really they pretty much caught up here. So Paul said, quote, I was in Hawaii recently talking with some folks from our military out there in the Pacific. One of the higher ranking members came up to me and said, take this message back to your fellow senators. War with China is not inevitable. End quote. And he said that they should be talking about how to avoid war with China, not making it inevitable. And he said that the U.S. has an uneasy peace with China, uh, basically saying that, uh, you know, the strategic ambiguity has has worked, uh, which which he's referring to the U.S. policy over Taiwan, not committing to going to war with them, um, you know, kind of not committing to going to war if China invades Taiwan, but they're basically, they're changing that. I mean, Biden has said explicitly that he would intervene if China attacked. And in Congress, they keep introducing legislation to change the fundamentally change the U.S. relationship with Taiwan. That's another thing uh, Paul said in his speech. So, I mean, you know, Rand Paul, what he thinks, does, you know, usually is not, uh, is different from most members of Congress. So, you know, it's not like because he's saying this that there's other people in Congress thinking this. I think, unfortunately, that it still is the case that the vast majority of Congress uh, is com- all in on the China war hawking. But still, I think it's just good to see somebody at least speaking out and somebody, you know, on the right, uh, you know, at an American conservative conference, that magazine, they they have some good articles about China and Taiwan. One from Rand Paul, actually, back last fall when it was the Senate uh, Foreign Relations Committee was creating this bill to increase support for Taiwan. Rand Paul was very against it. And he wrote an article for the American conservative saying, you know, we shouldn't be doing this uh, strategic ambiguity. We shouldn't change it. So hopefully he gets on on this a little more, uh, you know, makes a little more noise about it. All right. The next one here. House Democrat says that China cannot keep the U.S. out of the Taiwan Strait. So the top Democrat on the House's new China committee has warned that China's actions will not stop the U.S. from sending warships into the Taiwan Strait. So this is Representative Raja Krit. Uh, Krishna Morthy, he's a Democrat from Illinois. His comments came after the U.S. military accused a Chinese naval vessel of making an unsafe maneuver in the Taiwan Strait by passing 150 yards in front of a U.S. warship. So Krishna Morthy made these comments to Nikkei Asia. He said, quote, I hope that the CCP does not believe that such dangerous maneuvers or the lack of communication between our two countries will somehow discourage our freedom of navigation on the waterways in the Taiwan Strait or South China Sea or any international waterways, end quote. So basically saying, you know, you're not going to stop us. Um, and during, uh, and I just mentioned in the article that, that that encounter in the Taiwan Strait happened during that Shangri-La dialogue in Singapore when Lloyd Austin was there, but he did not get a meeting with China's defense minister because the U.S. has refused to lift sanctions on them. So uh, Krishna Murthy, he suggested that the U.S. might increase its military activity near China in response to China's response to uh, these U.S. provocations. So he said, quote, we will continue to exercise our freedom of navigation. And I think that any attempts by them to discourage us through some dangerous maneuvers will be extremely counterproductive and I believe will be perceived as bullying by the CCP. 
and will invite only more actions and reactions in the region, end quote. So basically threatening that, uh, and I think he might be right. I think that the U.S. might respond to this by doing more patrols in the South China Sea, flying more planes over uh, over the South China Sea, more patrols in the Taiwan Strait, I meant, but also in the South China Sea. So Krishna Murthy, he also told Nikkei that the U.S. and NATO should increase cooperation with India as part of its strategy against China. He called for India to be included in NATO Plus, which is a group that currently includes Japan, South Korea, Australia, New Zealand, and Israel. So, in, you know, India is a big one. Um, the U.S. has been increasing military ties with them back in 2020 after there was that clash at the disputed border up in the in the mountains, in the Himalaya mountains, between Chinese and Indian troops. It killed 20 Indian troops and at least four Chinese troops were killed. Um, you know, it's hand-to-hand -hand combat up there because their militaries are not deployed with guns, but they have like bats and clubs and stuff. So after that, the U.S. signed a deal with India to increase intelligence sharing. So now the U.S. helps India surveil Chinese troops there. And they could also use this data for drone strikes, you know, any kind of airstrikes. Um, if things really, uh, you know, if a real war breaks out there. So that's always kind of a possibility. And of course, China's aware of all that cooperation. Um, so it's kind of a big potential conflict that I think uh, a lot of people might not be aware of between China and India. At the same time, they have been engaged in a lot of talks. You know, they haven't really gotten... Uh, come to any agreements they they're at least talking a lot about that situation on the border all right the next one here uh Khamenei says that there's nothing wrong with reaching a nuclear agreement so this is Iranian supreme leader Ayatollah Ali Khamenei he said Sunday that there was nothing wrong with Iran reaching an agreement related to its civilian nuclear program as long as its infra infrastructure remains intact so Khamenei's comments come after Middle East. I reported that the U.S. and Iran were close to an interim nuclear deal that would see Iran reduce uranium enrichment levels in exchange for some sanctions relief. However, after that report came out, both the U.S. and Iran denied the claims, saying that the report was false. Although at the same time, I don't think either government is really going to be openly saying that a deal is close because there's opposition Domestic opposition kind of uh, on both sides, I think, from the respective legislatures. Uh, Khamenei made the comments, but here we have these comments from the Ayatollah, from Iran's leader, uh, you know, kind of hinting that they, they might be willing to make an agreement here. So he said, he, and Khamenei said this while he was visiting an exhibition of Iranian nuclear capabilities. He said, quote, you may want to reach agreements in some fields. Nothing is wrong with agreements but the infrastructure must remain intact, end quote. And he also denied claims that Iran is seeking a nuclear weapon, saying that Iran's enemies want to target the country's nuclear program to limit its development. He repeated Iran's longstanding position that, you know, creating weapons of mass destruction is against Islam. So Iran is currently enriching some uranium at 60%, which is less than the 90% needed for weapons grade. And Iran started this 60% enrichment in response to an Israeli attack on the Natanz nuclear facility in 2021. So it's an important thing to point out that, you know, the situation is because the current situation with the 60% enrichment is because Israel bombed one of their nuclear facilities. They planted an explosive in there. And before that, Iran 
increased enrichment to 20% after Israel assassinated Mohsen Fakhrizadeh, who was an Iranian scientist who was killed, I believe it was November 2020. Uh, it was when Trump was on the way out during the transition, you know, the very hectic transition period. It seems like it seemed like Israel was trying to provoke a big response from Iran, uh, hoping that, you know, Trump in his, you know, would would be willing to kind of back Israel in a war um, during that time. And so they killed Fakhrizadeh and they also increased, you know, attacks in Syria and things like that. So anyway, Iran, after they killed Fakhrizadeh, they started enriching uranium at 20%. And then after the Israelis blew up in the tents, they increased it to 60%. So all of Israel's threats and actions against Iran, you know, end up leading to them increasing their nuclear activity, you know. So a White House official said that this report from the Middle East Eye about the uh, potential deal was false and misleading. And Iran's envoy to the UN said that an interim deal was not on the agenda. So that Middle East Eye report said that the US and Iran had been holding talks and were close to an agreement that would involve Iran stopping its uranium enrichment it's 60% uranium enrichment in exchange for some sanctions relief. Um, so the Middle East Eye was not the only report. Uh, uh, Haaretz also reported that the U.S. and Israel were close to some sort of nuclear agreement. It didn't really have many details. And there was also a report from the Iranian Students News Agency that said Iran was due to get some funds uh, released that they that were seized offshore you know, like $20 billion, I think was what they said. And they didn't really have many details, but according to these other reports, that is the deal that's on the table is that they would get access to about $20 billion of their funds that have been frozen. So, you know, I think there, there must be some kind of talks or something going on, or we wouldn't be seeing these reports. Um, but it's just not clear exactly what what's really on the table here and if they're actually really close to making any kind of agreement. All right, the next one here, MBS threatened the U.S. with economic consequences. So the Washington Post reported that Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman warned the U.S. would suffer economic consequences if President Biden retaliated for OPEC oil cuts that were announced last fall. So the Post report cited a document allegedly leaked to Discord by Airman Jack Deshera, Although, again, you know, they didn't publish this document. I wish they would publish these documents that they are reporting on. I don't get why they don't. But this report said that MBS claimed that he would not deal with the Biden administration anymore if Biden imposed consequences on Riyadh over the OPEC cuts like he said he would. Biden was very angry. The Democrats were very mad at the Saudis for going along with these OPEC oil production cuts because it was October 2022, right before the uh, elections. So the report said that MBS promised major economic consequences for Washington if Biden retaliated, but it's unclear if the Saudis made the threat directly to the U.S. or if MBS's warning was intercepted by the U.S. spying on him. It's also unclear what economic consequences MBS had in mind. We know that the Saudis could put some economic hurt on the U.S. if they stopped trading uh, oil using the U.S. dollar. That would seriously threaten the U.S. dollar's global dominance. President Biden never went through with his vow to impose consequences on the Saudis, and his administration has been working lately to improve the relationship after Riyadh agreed to a surprise China-brokered normalization deal with Tehran. 
So the Saudis have been kind of going on their own little diplomatic path here, um, normalizing with Iran, normalizing with Syria, uh, also moving closer, developing their relationship with China. Secretary of State Antony Blinken visited Saudi Arabia last week, and Saudi officials made clear while he was there that they don't want the Biden administration to pressure them over their relationship with China, because, of course, we know that's become kind of their priority when it comes to foreign policy is really China and, and trying to counter China China's influence. So Saudi Foreign Minister Prince Faisal bin Farhan, he said at a joint press conference with Blinken, that Riyadh's ties with China would continue to grow. He, he did say that the U.S.-Saudi security relationship was still very robust, but made clear that the Saudis are not interested in any kind of U.S. ultimatums about their relationship with China. He said, quote, I don't ascribe to this zero-sum game. I think we are all capable of having multiple partnerships and multiple engagements, end quote. And again, he said that right alongside Blinken, uh, so making it clear. You know, they have a lot of leverage over the U.S. right now, the Saudis. Um, so I'm hoping the Saudis are going to continue with the path that they're going on, easing tensions. Uh, hopefully they make a formal peace in Yemen and don't get the U.S. to kind of back them up with everything and then restart that war. That would really be the worst case scenario here. Uh, but that is it for the news for today. Go check out our viewpoints, one from John V. Walsh about Taiwan. Taiwan's U.S. representative is not satisfied with Biden's support. One from Ted Snyder, making friends with Iran. One from uh, Miko Peled, 56 years after the 1967 war, the world still denies the Palestinian experience. That's over at Mondo Weiss. We have one from Katrina Vanden Heuvel and James Carden over at Responsible Statecraft. What kind of peace deal do we seek at what kind of peace do we seek at 60? JFK speech never gets old. And then the spotlight is from James Bovard, Snowden, and the fight for American privacy. That's over at the Future Freedom Foundation. Uh, but that's everything for me. I hope uh, everybody had a good weekend. Uh, you could always support this show, support antiwar.com at antiwar.com slash donate. Uh, like and subscribe on YouTube and comment. Uh, same thing if you watch on Rumble or Odyssey. Um, all that stuff really helps. And if you listen to the audio version, you could always leave a review. Uh, I've seen a lot of people have done that on um, the Apple podcast app. So that's great. I appreciate all the help and support. Show keeps growing. Uh, so, you know, I'm happy about that. Getting all this news out there to everybody um but that's it for me i'll be back tomorrow thanks for listening <laughs>